morning, right? And so, uh, let's look at two verses. Can Brother, can you turn that down just a little bit? Uh, it's pretty loud, isn't it? All right. First Timothy chapter 3 and verse 15, and then we're going to also read Matthew 15, 9. Let's start with a word of prayer this morning. Our Father, we're thankful for the privilege of being in your house with your people today here in Coeta. We pray that your Holy Spirit would open the word to us. We pray that you would show us things from your word that would give us Christian growth. And Father, may we be determined to follow the word, whatever it says. We pray your blessings on all the services today. Thank you for this church and its hospitality to us. We pray these things in Jesus Christ's holy name. Amen. First Timothy 3.15 and then we'll read Matthew 15.9. And I've given the title to this study today, The Regulative Principle. The Regulative Principle. Now I hope you'll take notes and write these things down, especially the scriptures. Don't believe what I say just because I say it. Make sure it's what the Word says. And if you'll write down the points and the scriptures, uh, I challenge you to read them and see if it's true. All right, First Corinthians, I mean First Timothy 3.15. Paul is writing to young preacher Timothy. But if I tarry long that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. Now Matthew 15 and verse 9. Matthew's gospel, chapter 15 and verse 9. These are the words of the Lord Jesus about the regulative principle also. But in vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. Worship has changed so much today that my father's generation would hardly recognize what goes on in today's church services. The preaching is different. The Bibles used are strange-sounding, and inaccurate. The music is virtually unrecognizable, and the very atmosphere is the opposite of what it was in my father's generation. Now, he's only been gone about 20 years. Has the Lord Jesus, the great head of the church, left any standard by which his worship is to be conducted? That's a very important question. Or are the churches left to themselves to invent new and, quote, more attractive ways to worship? Well, in our text in 1 Timothy 3, the Apostle Paul uh, says that he wrote the letter of 1 Timothy to Pastor Timothy so that Pastor Timothy could know how to manage things in God's house which he says is the church. But if I tarry long, 
that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. So in this verse, Paul gives us the standard for worship in the church. Now you can read right over that and not see it, and, and we read just about everything in the Bible, we read over it, I'm afraid, sometime, and don't see what it really says. Some in other denominations have called this, that we've just read, the regulative principle. The regulative principle. What these others have called the regulative principle, biblical Baptists believe, but we haven't always called it the regulative principle. In the study this morning of the regulative principle, I'm going to ask and try to answer five questions about the regulative principle. And so the first thing we need to do is answer question number one. What is the regulative principle? Now most modern Protestant denominations follow what they call the normative principle. They no longer follow the regulative principle. They call their guiding standard the, the normative principle. And the, the normative principle says that human tradition has a part to play in determining the worship methods of a church. Episcopalians, for example, teach that church worship may rightly be supplemented with the traditions of men. The 20th article of the Church of England's 39 articles, and the Church of England is the Episcopal Church in England. Article 20 says, quote, The church has power to decree rites and ceremonies and authorities in the controversies of the faith. In other words, if a church decides it wants to add certain ceremonies or doctrines or whatever, to the worship of God, they're free to do so. Old line reformed people, and we're not reformed. Old line reformed people have held to, or at least they've given lip service to the regulative principle. They talked about it. They speak of what they call sola scriptura. And that is a Latin term that means the scriptures only as the standard for what they believe and practice. And this is supposed to mean that the scriptures alone are sufficient to regulate the worship of a church. In more recent times, the more specific term, the regulative principle, has come to be used. Now I'm going to try to define the regulative principle right here. And it's very important to get this. This is the heart of what we're saying. The regulative principle says that we are to include in our worship only what God has commanded. I'm going to run that, out, run that by you again. We are to include in our worship only what God has commanded and we must not use practices that God's word is silent about. In other words... We do what God commands us to do, and if he doesn't command us to do something, we don't do that. All right, don't walk out yet. 
the regulative principle does not apply to all of life. It applies to worship in the church. For example, God's word in 1 Corinthians 14, 34, and 35, clearly, I didn't say it, God's word says it, it clearly forbids women to preach and teach in the meetings of the church. Now, you know, women, uh, I love women. I'm married to one. Been married 52 years. But women can do anything moral and scriptural in this world that they're big enough to do. But they are forbidden by the scriptures to speak in the church. I remember Wayne Camp had a sermon on this. And uh, boy, he really caught the flack over it. But it's Bible. The regulative principle prohibits worship that is not authorized by God in his written word. In other words, we can't bring in some practice that's not taught or have an example, has an example of in the word of God. Now... Some people, this is really slick, but some of these people tried to evade the regulative principle by saying, well, all of life is worship. Well, the fact is, however, that worship in the church is special worship for which God's word gives special instructions. In our text, Paul tells Pastor Timothy how he as pastor is to lead the church. You know, we could solve an awful lot of problems if pastors would follow these teachings in the Word of God that Paul gave Pastor Timothy about how to lead the church. You know, Paul tells Timothy how to get along with the older women in the church, how to get along with the younger women in the church, and so forth. It's all in the book. But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. So the church, I'm not, you know I'm not talking about a building when I talk about the church. You have a beautiful church building, but this building's not the church. The church is the place of God's special presence, and thus it is a house or a temple of God. Not talking about the building. And thus the church is holy in a distinct way in which the rest of life is not. The church as God's temple is subject to special and detailed regulation by the word of God. The special nature of the church of God as the place of his special presence is seen in Matthew 18, 15 through 20. Let's turn over there to Matthew 18, and I want us to just focus on verse 20. Now, what we're illustrating here is that the church is the place of God's special presence for worship. Matthew 18, 20, the Lord Jesus is speaking. And he says, for where two or three are gathered together in my name, 
There am I in the midst of them. Did you get it? Where two or three are gathered together, that's a church meeting. There, in that church, am I in the midst of them. So church worship is the place of the special presence of God. The special nature of the church is this. It is the place of God's special presence. Thus, it is his house or his temple. As such, the church is holy in a special way that the rest of life is not. The area of worship is different than other areas of life. Paul says in our text that the church is God's house, a spiritual building in which he dwells. The house of God is a people among whom God dwells and by whom he is worshipped. The church, again, is not a building, but it is a body of people. Well, the church is God's house. It's not our house. We need to remember that. You know, I I kind of cringe when I hear preachers say, my church doesn't do that, or my church does that. Well, it's not his church. It's the Lord's church. And I know that kind of seems to be picky, but it is not our church in the sense that we possess it and we own it. It's God's church. It's not our house to be carried on by our own traditions and inventions and preferences. The regulative principle limits the human initiative and freedom that's allowed in other areas of life. We can't do certain things in the church that we can do in other areas of life. Worship is regulated in a more restrictive way than are other areas in life. According to the regulative principle, even the most sincere worship can be wrong if it does not conform to the commands of Christ in His Word. You know, I've heard people say, well, it doesn't matter how you worship, just so you're sincere. That's not true. You can be the most sincere of all in your worship and still be wrong if you're going against the commands of God in His Word. Therefore, false worship is anything in worship that is not commanded by God. Anything we bring into the worship of God is false worship if it's not commanded by God in his word. Now, the Lord Jesus has not left us to worship him and determine how we will do so by our own taste. He hasn't left it up to us. Sinful men may not decide how, we, how they will approach a holy God. Now, think about that. Man's approach to God was disrupted by the fall. And fallen man can never restore his approach to God. Only God can provide a way to restore man's access to him. How are we going to come to God? Not just any old way that we might decide. Only as he tells us how we're to come before God. We must not add to nor take away from the instructions for and examples of worship in God's Word. 
Now, it's very important to note that the regulative principle deals with the substance of worship and not the circumstances of worship. Now you say, well, preacher, what do you mean by that? The circumstances of worship are things like church buildings, electric lights, and air conditioners, and pews. You know, these are circumstances, none of which they had in New Testament times. Aren't you glad we don't have to meet in caves and so forth like they did in those days? The circumstances of worship change. They're different in every age. But the substance of worship, i tell you what I mean. We have these soft cushion pews. I can remember, I, I'm an old man. I can remember in the 40s, many churches had these benches with no cushions and they, they had slats about that wide and they had cracks between the slats about like that. And by the time church was over, it hurt in certain places. And especially if the preacher preached an hour like they used to do. The circumstances of worship change, but, not, uh, but the substance of worship, that means the elements of worship, must remain the same. Now let me tell you a story uh, from my father, who was a Baptist preacher also. Camelite preacher came to him and he said, uh, where do you get pianos in worship? Remember, that's one of the circumstances of worship. He said, where do you get a piano in worship? He said, the same place you get your electric lights. And if you don't know what the, the joke of that is, they don't believe in music instruments in their worship services. Church of Christ people don't. And uh, they, he tried to make it a biblical issue, and my dad just turned it right around on him and said, if we get our piano the same place, you get your electric lights. And he could have said, your air conditioners and your church buildings and all of that. All right, question number two. I said there are five. Does God's word teach the regulative principle? This is really important in this matter. God's written word is essential to worship. The only thing binding on God's people is God's word. That's the only thing we have to do or we have to refrain from is what God's word says. The scriptures contain every bit of the will of God for worship. You believe that? I do. I'm sold on that. The scriptures contain everything we need for worship. The Bible is the final authority in the church. You know, Southern Baptists don't believe that anymore. We'll talk about that a little bit in a moment. God's word forbids any form of worship that God himself does not institute. Exodus, let's turn together to Exodus 20, verses 4 and 5. This is in the midst of the Ten Commandments. Exodus 20, and we'll read verses 4 and 5. We're talking about how God regulates his worship. Here we have the second commandment. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth, thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God. 
Now, that eliminates all idols and religious pictures from worship right there. Very plain. Let's turn next to Deuteronomy chapter 12 and verse 30. Deuteronomy chapter 12 and verse 30. This is addressed directly to the matter of how God was to be worshipped in Israel when they entered the land after the exodus. God is speaking here to Israel about the heathen nations. Take heed to thyself that thou be not snared by following them. After that they be destroyed from before thee and that thou inquire not after their gods saying, how did these nations serve their gods? Even so will I do likewise. He said, don't copy the worship of the heathen in your worship. Look at verse 32 there. What things soever I command you, observe to do it. Thou shalt not add thereto, nor diminish from it. So the people of Israel were not even to investigate the worship methods of the heathen. So they would not be tempted to adopt these practices in the worship of God. So how are we to know what elements are involved in the proper worship of God. How do we know that? The proper elements of worship are found in the New Testament. You want to find out how to worship God in the church, go to the New Testament. And as I see it, there are eight elements of New Testament worship. Eight things that are involved in all biblical worship. And again, I would encourage you to write these down in your Bibles. Write down the element and the scriptures so that you can look them up again later and see if I'm right. All right, the first element of worship that's taught in the New Testament is assembly. Assembly. The Greek word that's translated church in our King James Version means literally an assembly. You know, a lot of people don't know that. They think the church is something floating around out here in the air that you can't see. And everybody that saves a member of it. The church, there has to be an assembly. There has to be a coming together. There has to be a meeting of the church in order to have true biblical worship. James chapter 2 and verse 2 speaks of the church as an assembly. Let's turn to that. James chapter 2 and verse 2. For if there come unto your assembly a man with a gold ring and goodly apparel, and there come in also a poor man in vile raiment. He speaks of the church as your assembly. Now turn to Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 25, just before the book of James. Hebrews 10 and verse 25 says, To the people of God, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as the manner of some is. Now you know, I I have, uh, through my 62 years in ministry, gone into many people's homes and said, 
we missed you Sunday. We'd like to have had you in church. And they said, oh, well, I didn't come, but I worshiped on TV. I don't know how many times people tell me that. Listen, you cannot worship on TV. It cannot be done because there's no assembly in such viewing. Now, you, you can get some good things out of, I don't know if there's any good preachers left on TV or not, but if there, if there are good preachers, you can get something out of what they say, but you're not worshiping. Don't ever say, I worshiped on TV last Sunday because you have to have an assembly. All right? A second element of biblical worship is preaching. The Word of God must be preached. And that word means declared or proclaimed. Turn to Acts 20, verses 7 and 8. Acts 20, verses 7 and 8. When Paul visited the church at Troas, what did he do? He preached to them. And upon the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul preached unto them. They Notice it says they came together. That's assembly. They came together to break bread. Paul preached unto them, ready to depart on the morrow, and continued his speech until midnight. And there were many lights in the upper chamber where they were gathered together. There's that assembly again. And there sat in a window a certain young man named Eutychus being fallen into a deep sleep. And as Paul was long preaching, he sunk down with sleep and fell down from the third loft and was taken up dead. So Paul went to church, the assembly, and he preached. Turn to 1 Corinthians 1.17. 1 Corinthians one. 17. And we're going to read verse 17 and then skip down and read verse 23. Verse 17. For Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. Now go down to verse 23. But we preach Christ crucified, under the Jews a stumbling block, and under the Greeks foolishness. Many churches are minimizing and even eliminating preaching in their worship today. You know, I remember hearing, a re- I saw an article in the Daily Oklahoman uh, in which Gene Bartlett, who's head of Southern Baptist Music, said, we're having a, a music, we're having a, cel- a music celebration on such and such a Sunday, and no preaching all day. Now that's wrong. You know, if a church gets together, one of the main elements of worship is preaching. And so many are substituting today celebrity appearances, political speakers. Lenny and I used to go to a church where uh, before the elections, the, the preacher invited all the local politicians to come and tell how they stood on certain issues. And they didn't have preaching on those days. Musical cantatas. Some people turn out church for music cantatas. And films instead of preaching. 
You know, films may be good over there in Fellowship Hall or wherever, but uh, they're not good as substitutes for preaching. Can't find films in the Word of God. All right, a third very important element of biblical worship is the reading of the Scriptures. Turn to 1 Timothy 4.13. The reading of the Scriptures. 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 13. Paul tells Pastor Timothy here, you know, he's telling him how to conduct himself in the church of God. Till I come, give attendance to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. And as the context shows here, Paul is speaking of worship services in the church. Next, turn to 2 Thessalonians 5.27. I'm sorry, 1 Thessalonians 5.27. Paul charged the church at Thessalonica to read the scriptures. He charged them to read his letter of 1 Thessalonians in the meetings of that church. I charge you by the Lord that this epistle be read unto all the holy brethren. Where would he read it? But in in the church services. All right, a fourth element in biblical worship is singing. You know, Christianity is a singing religion. The Lord Jesus instituted singing in worship when he instituted the Lord's Supper. Remember, they sang a hymn and went out into the Mount of Olives. That, by the way, that first supper was a meeting of the first church. Turn to Colossians 3.16. Colossians chapter 3. And verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms, the psalms was the songbook in those days, and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. So we are to sing in our hearts to the Lord as we worship. God has regulated music in public worship just as he has every other element of worship. Worship through singing. Now here's here's where we in our churches depart many times. Worship through singing is not a matter of professional performance. It's a matter of heart devotion. Now here's what I mean. I hope you'll still say amen after this. This is why canned background music does not belong in our worship. Now think about it. Such music is professional or it seeks to sound professional. And God wants music from our own hearts and our own abilities. Singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. When I was in high school in Oklahoma City, I was shocked that one day I was offered a position in the choir of a congregational church and the music director offered me offered to pay me for singing in his choir. 
and it was $2 a Sunday. And if you only came uh, one service, it was a dollar and a half. What an insult to God. The true idea of singing in church is that the people shall worship, not witness a performance, and not be entertained. A fifth element of biblical worship is prayer. Turn to 1 Timothy 2, 1 and 2. 1 Timothy 2, we'll read verses 1 and 2 and then move to verse 8. These are a part of Paul's instructions to Timothy about worship in the churches. Verse 1, 1 Timothy 2, verse 1. I exhort therefore that first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and for all that are in authority, that they may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. Then look down at verse 8. I will therefore that men, by the way that's men as opposed to women in the grammar, I will therefore that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. Next, let's turn to Acts 2.42. Acts chapter 2 and verse 42. And here, uh, and, and in the next verse too that we're going to read, prayer was a prominent part of worship in the early church. Acts 2.42, And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. Next turn to Acts 4.31. Acts 4, verse 31. And when they had prayed, the place was shaken where they were assembled together. So prayer is essential to all proper worship. We must pray for God's presence and God's leadership and God's power and God's illumination and God's enablement in our worship. And yet, there is little or no public prayer in many of our churches today. Prayer meetings no longer exist in most churches. Uh, they've been replaced by Bible studies. You know, I always, always felt the preacher is un, unduly burdened to have, a, have to have a message on Wednesday night. If you're going to call it prayer meeting, you ought to be praying. If it's prayer, you know, what do you do in a prayer meeting? You pray. Prayer meetings have been replaced by Bible studies. And even our regular services include very few prayers. A sixth element of biblical worship is thanksgiving. Again, 1 Timothy 2.1 mentions this element. Turn again to 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 1. Paul says here, I exhort therefore that first of all, supplications prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. 
Next, turn to Ephesians 5.20, where Paul is writing to the church at Ephesus. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 20. <clears throat> Giving thanks always for all things unto God and the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Next is Hebrews 13.15. Hebrews 13.15. Paul says here concerning Christian worship, by him Christ therefore let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually, that is, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. We go to worship partly because we are thankful to Christ for what he's done for us. Seventh, giving is the seventh element of biblical worship, giving of our financial means to God. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 16 and we'll look at verses 1 and 2. 1 Corinthians 16, 1 and 2. Yes, it is spiritual to talk about money. Paul says giving is part of worship. Now, concerning the collection for the saints, that's the word collection. As I have given order to the churches of Galatia, even so do ye. Upon the first day of the week, let every one of you lay by him in store, as God hath prospered him, that there be no gatherings when I come. So giving is one of the basic elements of worship. The eighth element, and this will be the last one we look at, the eighth element of biblical worship involves observance of the two ordinances observance of baptism and the Lord's Supper. In Matthew 28, 19 of our Lord's Great Commission, he instructs the churches to baptize believers. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. And in Romans 6, 4, Paul explains the meaning of baptism to the church at Rome. Then the other ordinance... The Lord's Supper is explained by Paul to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 11. And let me just read that before we run out of time here. 1 Corinthians 11, 24 and 25, if you're writing these down. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take eat, this is my body which is broken for you. This do, that's a command, this do in remembrance of me. After the same manner also he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. So those are the eight, as I see it from the New Testament, the eight elements of biblical worship. But many of our churches today have all but admitted, uh, omitted some of these basic elements. Most churches have added to these elements, ideas and practices of their own, saying, well, we need to enhance the worship experience uh, for, for this modern generation. Well, listen, there's no need to enhance our worship experience. 
and thus attract more young people to our services. Disobeying God's regulations doesn't enhance anything. We must not insert into the worship service any elements that are the inventions of men. No one has a right to add to this list or take away from it. To do so is to be guilty of what Colossians 2.23 calls will worship or worship invented by man's own will. Now here's the third question. What are some biblical examples of breaking the regulative principle? I'll just give you two of these and then we'll move on to the other questions. There, but there are plenty in the Bible. In 2 Kings 16, 10 through 18, King Ahaz added his own preferred altar to God's instructions for worship. Remember Ahaz went to Syria to visit the king there and while he was there, he saw this altar that he really fancied. He thought, man, that is really something. And he thought it'd be a great addition to the worship of the temple, worship of God in the temple. So he got the specifications and he sent them home to the priest and he told the priest, you make one of these. And when, we, and when he got home, uh, the people began to use it in worship. But God rejected that unauthorized altar. Then uh, one other uh, example of breaking the regulative principle, the high places in Old Testament Israel and Judah were unauthorized elements of worship and God sent judgment on Israel and Judah for using the high places. In Leviticus 26.30, God threatened judgment on his people for the use of high places in worship. Let me just read that. And I will destroy your high places, God says, and cut down your images and cast your carcasses upon the carcasses of your idols and my soul shall abhor you. Well, I had several more, but uh, we'll go on to the next question. What historically have Baptists had to say about the regulative principle? As I stated earlier, Baptists had not always referred to the regulative principle by that name. But our confessions of faith reveal that we have believed it nevertheless. One example, the London Baptist Confession of 1689 says, quote, The acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself and so limited to his own revealed will that he may not be worshiped according to the imaginations and devices of men or the suggestions of Satan under any visible representations or any other way not prescribed in the Holy Scriptures, unquote. So that's not the Bible, but that's what Baptists have historically believed. Now the quest, last question, and uh, I hope you'll forgive me for this, but you, we need, to, instead of just having doctrine, we need practical application. So I don't want to miss the practical application. What's wrong with not following the regulative principle. In answering this, let's look first at some examples of not following the regulative principle in the churches today. Some things that are added to today's worship that are not taught and not exemplified in God's word, thus they do not follow the regulative principle. And there are many of these. A lot more than we might think. 
Let me just quickly list some of them uh, here. Women preachers. Children's church. Give me chapter and verse on that. Women praying publicly in the services. As I pointed out earlier, this is forbidden in 1 Timothy 2.8. Applauding in the worship services. You know, what do we think this is? Is this a theater? Is man getting the glory from our applause? The use of symbols such as crosses and doves and pictures of Christ. The use of dramas and passion plays. Brother Wayne Camp once said that the Bellevue Baptist Church of Memphis, Tennessee spends $275,000 each year putting on on Sunday night what they call the living Christmas tree. And that's more money than we spend at this church in maybe two years. Giving altar calls at the close of the service. You know, I couldn't find a single altar call in the whole New Testament. The Lord Jesus never gave one. Interpretive dance. You know, a lot of churches are doing that. Puppet ministries, clown shows, Christian comedians, worship leaders other than pastors, showing movies, using rock bands, replacing preaching with traveling gospel quartets, religious banners, and processions in the services. None of these things is authorized or commanded or exemplified in the Word of God. Well, I've just got to stop. I've got a lot more to go, but it's almost time to start the morning service. So if you'd like to discuss that at noon today, I promise I won't get mad at you if you won't get mad at me. But we'll close there. Let's stand for a word of prayer and ask the Lord to uh, use this in our lives and in our church. Our Father in heaven, we're thankful for...